This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Andreas Bernard, the author of Theory of the Hashtag. Andreas, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks. Thank you. So I'm hoping you can start out by talking a little bit about what got you interested in the hashtag and writing this um, book about it. Yeah, I think my interest um, arose um, at the peak of the Me Too debate, let's say in the winter 2017-18, when in, um, also in Germany, where I live, I would say on every day, a um, couple of newspaper articles and hundreds of Facebook and um, Twitter postings um, were dealing um, with this movement and, um, and this hashtag, so to speak. And... Um, in Germany and, um, of course, um, as well, and especially in the U.S., I think they have been discussed day by day in, 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 in hundreds of, uh, of postings, um, the ethical and political um, um, reasons and the ethical and political um, content of all that. But what I've never seen, at least in Germany, was um, somebody who dealt, let's say, with the media technological conditions of this whole movement, uh, or in other words, how the hashtag shaped the whole debate. And you remember that um, there have been, for example, a lot of um, statements, uh, at least as far as I knew in, in Germany and Europe, about the problem, let's say, of the um, of the thresholds of this movement. So where does um, there's a certain kind of um, abuse starts, for example, what could you consider as part of Me Too, what not. And my um, um, impression was that um, the hashtag has a pretty ambivalent or had a pretty ambivalent function in that movement that on the one hand, of course, it was a very, very precious enhancer of voices. On the other hand, there was a little risk of homogenization, so to speak, that, for example, some nuances or some differentiations of, of statements um, were problematic because you all had to subsume it under this one hashtag. And this was the start. And I thought it could be interesting to write kind of a structural analysis of the hashtag as the organizer of public discourse in the age of social media. And that was the beginning. So you sort of start out by giving a bit of a history to the hashtag and how it came about in social media. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that history? 
Yes, of course. I mean, um, when, when I started to do research on, on this um, short book, I firstly was interested in, in, the, in the fact when, when has the hashtag been um, introduced in, into Twitter, for example, and to Instagram short time later. And then you have um, very fast this, you could say, official little history about this, that a product designer and activist in, in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, um, called Chris Messina, um, introduced the hashtag um, to Twitter in, in the summer of 2007. And then um, at first it was a little, you know, the whole system was a little reluctant to, to use it. But then with the San Diego um, fires in October of 2007, it kind of was launched um, to Twitter and the success story began. And then as always, you know, as a historian of technology or as a historian of media, I'm always a little suspicious about these very clear, very, very one-dimensional um, histories of invention. And so I just um, thought um, to reconstruct it a little more um, with a little more um, you know, intensity or a little more um, precision. And so then I, then I looked around what, what were the techniques, what were the the, the trials around 2007 to organize the, the sheer mass of tweets, um, not only by author, but only by, uh, also by, by, by topics, by subjects. And so it turned out that maybe what Chris Messina, who is really a very, very good, um, marketer of himself was Chris Messina claimed as his own singular invention was maybe one version of a bunch of very many trials of very many, um, processes of organizing something like the hashtag around 2007. So that's maybe the, you know, that's the first chapter maybe in the book. Right. And, and you also move into set, setting us up with sort of that social media and that history and that sort of um, complicated history, but also, then you talk about it as a symbol and sort of linguistics and looking at the symbol of the hashtag. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you learned about the origins of it as um, this. Well, in the United States, what we would call the pound sign. Yes, yes. I mean, first, you know, what, what I also was interested in is is basically um, fundamentally about the the aura or the or the power of the hashtag today and you can you can figure it out if you let's say on a random day if you go through the street of a city like like new york city where, where i'm um, working um at, at the moment um if you if you go around you see the sign on the on the uh, covers of books you see the sign on the graffiti uh, on walls you see the sign even as a tattoo um and you know, on all these materials, on on paper, on stone, on wool, on skin, um, the hashtag cannot be clicked upon. It cannot connect anything. And still, it has uh, obviously such a power at the moment. And that's, I think, the interesting thing for me to, to face um, the power of the hashtag, which um, you could say, which, which brings a promise with it, you know, the promise of connectivity and the promise of bundling voices and that's what I was interested in and when you when you ask uh, what was the you know the history and the biography of the sign before that it's it's very interesting because at least I didn't know so much about this and in in the US um, as you said 
the sign was always called pound sign or number sign, and everybody knows the abbreviation um, number 10, for example, with the sign or, or 10 and then the sign as 10 pounds for something. And if you read books um, already in the 19th century, this sign shows up, um, what you call the hash. And I tried to find out and during my research how this came up. up. And I, I think the, um, the most convincing theory is that in earlier times when there was no book print or where there was more handwriting, you know, in the, in the, in the books of, of um, people who were a salesman or, or who had to who write, um, you know, books about their, their, um, their, their sales, they always um, um, used um, the LB in handwriting, LB with a dash in it as an abbreviation, and this meant pound. And the the this uh, theory says that um, um, decade by decade, year by year, um, when they all wrote this LB dash in a handwriting in a very loose way, um, it, it more and more looked like the hashtag. And this is a convincing history, I think. And so when, when, when book print arose and you had to find a sign for this LB with a dash in it, then you created this, this sign as a, as a character in, in print. And, and that's interesting. And so it came up. And then um, there was a very important year in the history of the typewriter. When the typewriter was invented in the last quarter of the 19th century, then in 1888 in Toronto, people met for the first Congress of the Universal Typewriter Keyboard, and they wanted to create a standard keyboard, which has not been there until 1888. And then they talked about what signs, except for letters and numbers, should be on the keyboard. And then they decided that the, um, that the pound sign should be included above uh, the three, like until today. And this was a very important uh, moment because from that on, you could say um, the hashtag or the pound sign was part of the inner, you know, the inner standard um, um, bunch of, of signs. And, and then we could, if you want, um, we could then switch to the touchtone telephone, which is the next big threshold in the history of the, of the sign. Right. And I thought that was really interesting, too, that because the typewriter had the pound sign, the touchtone phone then incorporated it as opposed to the other symbols it was thinking of using. Right. And that's so interesting because, you know, I mean, if you are a historian of of media technology or a historian and historian of typography, it's always the questions, the question why, you know, why some signs have had this big career, so to speak, mm -hmm. and some signs kind of vanished over the times. And, and that's really interesting because when the first touchdown telephones were created by AT&T in the early 1960s, um, after a couple of, um, of years and the first um, um, models of these telephones, um, there was the need for two more signs. So you, you had the, you had the, you had the, the, the figures, um, one, to zero, and then there were two um, two free spaces left of the zero and right of the zero. And since the telephone in the 1960s more and more was connected to early computer systems, for example, if you wanted to type in your credit card number or you wanted to be um, you wanted to to talk to 
um, um, your bank um, to, to, to ask some question for your account and you had to type in your account, then um, there were two signs um, necessary. First, a sign to start the process. This was, uh, how, you, how do you call it in English and German? is Asterix, the, the star. Right. Yeah. Is, how do you say in English? I don't know. I would probably say the same thing The to start the phone or to start. Yeah, I would probably say the same thing. I mean, the name of the sign. I don't know. If the oh, word, the, pa- the, the other one, the, the star. Yeah. Oh, the, mm, in German, it's Asterix. Right. Yes, it would be Asterix, probably that right. same. But some people say star, though. Okay. So you had the star to start the process. And then um, the engineers of the touchtone telephone thought about what could be the sign um, for the ending of the process, you know, like the confirmation. Um, type in your number and confirm with the <laughs> sign. And then the early, um, uh, in the first AT&T touchtone phones, it was um, the diamond sign. And and then they they wanted to, to go on, on market, you know, try to sell the first phones in the mid-1960s. And then they figured out that the diamond sign is not on the universal typewriter. And since you had to fill out so many formulas and you had so many different form of, of papers, which would be um, at hand in stores and everything for advertising and for, for sales. And then the engineer said, no, we have to have a sign, um, which is part of the universal keyboard. And then they decided to take the, the pound sign. And this is like the big um, threshold in the biography of, of, the, of the pound sign in the, in the second half of the 20th century, because from then... You could say, okay, now now this um, pound sign is really one of the most important signs on touch phone telephones. And then, when the internet started for 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 everybody in the early nineties, then it uh, showed up in these maybe you remember in these very early forms of chats, which were called re, um, relay chats. Mm-hmm. And you already then had the structure that on these early internet chats, if you wanted to start a new subject, you put in the um, uh, the pound sign. So this was already kind of a, of a pre-era of the hashtag. And then when Twitter came in 2006, one year later, um, the hashtag started its career. Right. And so you give us a sort of history of this symbol. Um, and then you also talk about how this um, using this symbol impacts the use of keywords in sort of library sciences as well as sort of organizing things and categorizing things. So can you talk a little bit about this, what has happened now with keywords and and sort of that history and how that comes into play? Yes. I mean, when, when you asked me um, before what was the first um, impact or the first, uh, the first um, intention to write this book, I think what this was the second, uh, the second thing, the second interest that I, uh, I, I had the question, um, how did, um, this new allocation and this new organization of knowledge in digital cultures, um, is driven by keywords and, uh, or by buzzwords. And if you remember back, let's say around the turn of the century, 20 years back, what would you say? Um, where was the keyword? I would say the keyword was something which was not present in general organization of knowledge, but was only something which was there in very marginal contexts. So if you think what, what you've already said, if you think about the archive or library context, you had the subject catalog or you had the keyword catalog, 
in, for example, university or public libraries. And there you had the structure that keywords organized um, knowledge. Then another thing in, in Germany and Europe, there has been since the early 20th century a subdiscipline called keyword research in German Schlagwortforschung. I'm not sure um, how it, it was um, developed in the US if there's something which is called keyword research, but in, at least in, in Germany where it was kind of invented in historiography in the early 20th century, this was the need, you know, to, um, to, to reconstruct a certain epoch, historical epoch, or to reconstruct a certain social movement by keywords. So what is the keyword of the Reformation age? What is the keyword of uh, 19th century democracy um, research? And then, then you kind of narrate history um, in terms of finding keywords. So in these two disciplines, archival library sciences and historiography, the keyword was there, but this was only totally marginal. Nobody was interested except for um, experts. And then um, in digital culture and with the development of um, social media networks like Twitter and Instagram, um, within a couple of years only um, until today, the keyword is the virtual um, center of organizing statements and documents and knowledge. And I think that's very interesting for, for a media researcher because um, what does that mean? And that's something, you know, in this short book, I maybe just try to lay out in a first, in a first step. I'm far away from really having analyzed this in depth, but I just posed it as a question maybe, and this question is still very interesting for me. What does it mean for a culture if practically all statesmen, statements on political issues, on, on, on cultural issues, on uh, popular issues today are debated by using keywords and by trying to, you know, um, um, step up or, or by trying to accumulate the power of a statement because you use a hashtag or a keyword which is used by so many other people. And that's an um, absolutely new um, constellation in the ways how public discourse works. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, and, and so then you bring this into thinking about sort of political activism as well as marketing. And so let's start with the political activism. So you talk especially about the role of uh, the hashtag in um, talking about in the United States, police violence and police brutality and a lot of what happens with black Twitter and black lives matter. And, and so can you talk a little bit about the role of the hashtag with political activism? Yes, sure. I mean, you know, this was maybe the, like the, the, the um, longest part of this, of this book or the longest part of this essay that I thought to myself, um, where, in which fields, in which spheres, 
um, does the hashtag play the most important role today? And if, um, if you, for example, search a database in a library, or if you do a Google search, then something very clear um, um, happens, what you have already just mentioned, because you will find out that um, with the exception of very, very singular little um, 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 texts, you only have really two big spheres um, where the hashtag really plays a role in terms of being analyzed and being theoreticized and all that. And the, the one of these two spheres is political activism. And I think this is a story, and that's the reason why I tried to cut it a little short in this book. That's something which has been analyzed a lot. I mean, if you think back, um, when, when does Twitter play a role, or when does the hashtag play a role as something which is kind of focused in a theoretical way, then it's always um, the so-called um, hashtag activism. And I tried just to... Um, reconstruct this this short history in um in in mentioning or in analyzing a couple of, of very popular um events where it where it has played a role and as you have just mentioned i think the most popular hashtags in um in terms of political activism were hashtags like black lives matter or, or ferguson where of course the very important productive role of the hashtag has become very clear. So if you think about events where um, where white um, authoritative persons, armed persons, kill unarmed black teenagers, then you can say that um, both the um, journalistic and juridical reactions towards these events in mass media and in, in television and in, in newspapers were not very satisfying, were insufficient. And then, of course, a medium like Twitter and a hashtag like Black Lives Matter or Ferguson, which has been um, used in over 30 million statements until today, um, is a very powerful tool. And uh, and that's the, I would say that's the one you could say that's the one big, um, big, um, you know, big moment of the hashtag that for those who are not represented well in mass media, for those whose voice is kind of ignored or at least disturbed, for those, um, the hashtag on, quit on Twitter can be um, a site where the own voice can be raised without the filters, without the distorting filters of mass media. And this is, I would say, the role of the hashtag in, uh, in political activism. Right. And, and so you sort of mirror that, or you also talk about the role in marketing, which becomes very different, and the use of the hashtag in marketing. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about that a bit. It, it keeps making me think of right now we have our the, um, the Democratic debates going on, and we have this big field, and sort of the use of hashtag in politics uh, you talk about a bit as marketing as well. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that other role and the marketing role of the hashtag? Yes, of course. Um, you know, when I started this book, um, 
I, I work um, at a center for digital cultures at a German university, and we have a lot of fellows from all over the world. And this um, topic of hashtag activism was kind of um, present in, in, our, in our research at the center for digital cultures um, within the last two or three years. And uh, when I when I listened to these talks or when I read those um, papers and, and the volumes um, which have been edited with different papers on hashtag activism, I always kind of missed um, the mentioning of this ambiguity because there's, for example, a, a, a very um, a very good, very thick 500-page um, volume um, called hashtag um, activism um, edited by a researcher called Nathan Rambukana, I think from California in 2015. And there are a lot of papers, five, 600 pages um, long uh, altogether, which call the hashtag, as they do in, in this book, a, a, um, a rebel sign, you know, a rebel um, part of typography, which can alter the mainstream discourse and politics, which can be an alternative um, to, to certain political um, tendencies. And I always missed when I read this, um, the other side. And I would, the other, I would say the other side is exactly the other 50% of, of texts, of articles, of instructions which show up if you type in a hashtag in Google or if you type in hashtag in a database. And these other 50% are kind of unknown or kind of um, ignored um, by, by the academic humanities uh, community and uh, and I wanted to you know I wanted I wanted to give um, insight in both worlds and this other um, sphere hashtag marketing I mean it's very clearly understandable why the hashtag in marketing and in advertisement is so important you know because um, the hashtag gives the possibility to the companies um, to find a slogan or to, um, to not even to create a slogan themselves, but to find slogans, let's say in the Instagram community and to kind of, um, like pirates, you know, um, 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 take them and transform them into a slogan of product um, marketing and let all the people, especially on Instagram, who, um, who use this um, um, hashtag on their profiles be a part of this community. And um, as you know, this kind of marketing um, has had a, a special name since 10, 15 years called content marketing. And content marketing reacts to the different media sphere in digital culture until 20, 25 years ago, a company had to pay um, for advertisements in the newspaper or on radio or on television um, to have um, some some space or some time to um, um, do marketing for their products um, as a um, separated part of media. Now, as you know, it's totally different. Now, every big company is kind of a media house itself. It has a lot of um, um, autonomous channels, like like own profiles, like own Twitter, Instagram accounts, like own blogs, um, where they can act like a publisher, for example, Red Bull, the Austrian company is the big pioneer of this. And now every company can create a media sphere where advertising is far more subtle. Advertising now means create an atmosphere and content 
where the consumers maybe feel in the mood that they want to connect to this brand. And so the hashtag, I would say, is the ideal agent of this um, new content marketing because it, you know, it accelerates and it accumulates a, comp a, a community of consumers which subsume their comments and their desires under this hashtag. So it's very, very practical. And I think you have to think about the consequences. You have to think if this hashtag, you could say, um, commodifies language. So the words after the hashtag or the order of words after the hashtag are kind of a commodity, a kind of a slogan, kind of a, kind of a marketing um, practice. If this is the case, what does this mean for the usage of the hashtag in politics or in activism? And I think this is a question which is maybe necessary to pose. Right. And you sort of end this with that discussion. Is this empowering? Is it sort of leveling um, that use of that hashtag within statements, how people often will use the hashtag to um, be sarcastic or to emphasize something that they're tweeting about or posting on Instagram, but also then the use of it by companies or other ways to make it um, more uniform. And so can you just sort of talk about that, uh, sort of the conclusions that you've come to? Yes, I would say the conclusion, you know, since it's more an essay, it was not my concern really to to have this complete, absolutely um, um, structured, differentiated analysis. But it was more, since it's an 80, 90 page essay, it was more the matter of um, asking questions and to lay out some some reflections on, on the hashtag. And I think what was important for me is to lay out this ambiguity or this ambivalence that um, on the one hand, of course, um, the hashtag in the last 10 years has been a sign of empowerment, has been a sign where people can unite, where people can bundle statements to let them have more power, more influence, more impact than they would have without it. But on the other hand, and that's maybe even more important, I would say, since you can see even in the, in the, in the few months my book has been published, um, that it has been conquered more and more by um by um by marketing by companies by by public relations uh because um it's so you know it's so seductive that um that every every statement every statement which uses the same hashtag can be used in in this way that you kind of commodify um, language that you kind of um, transform language into advertising into marketing and this um, is what I what I meant with leveling what you have mentioned just um, before that the that the hashtag maybe levels um, um, language levels desire level statements and you can always think about maybe this could be something like a conclusion um, the conclusive questions could be what has um, what has the hashtag, maybe, how could you say, what has the hashtag enabled? It has enabled um, the amplification of voices. It has enabled 
the um, you could say it has enabled maybe the the bundling of voices. But you could also ask what has the hashtag weakened, and I would say it has weakened maybe the uh, uniqueness of voices, and it has weakened the um, idiosyncrasy of voices, so voices or statements which can't be compared, which can't be leveled, which are just kind of a little um, weird or spooky or very singular. And so in this ambivalence between empowerment and leveling, the hashtag um, is out there, I would say, in our um, digitally organized public discourse, and it's maybe worth to think about it um, even more in the future. So you had mentioned, too, that this is part, so this is, like you said, sort of a a longer essay, um, and that it's part of a larger book and a larger project. So can you talk a little bit about that and what this is sort of attached to and part of? Yes, yes, um, very much. Um, um, in I think in the U.S., the, the um, um, at, at Polity, the publisher, um, now two, big, two books have been released in a very short um, period. So maybe four weeks before the hashtag book came out, um, there was the release date of a book called um, The Triumph of Profiling, which is more like a, a more in-depth analysis of, of 250 pages or so. And in this book, I was interested in a, a little more and a little broader um, question. What uh, is the status of, of the self? What is the status of subjectivity in our digital culture today? And my starting question was very easy because I asked um, why had 25 years ago, why, why only serial killers and lunatics had a profile made by police or the FBI? And today, 25 years later, why does everyone have to have a lot of profiles voluntarily? So a format of describing subjectivity or identity, which has been in the history of criminology and psychiatry, a format um, to describe deviant subjects, has transformed in a very, very um, fast period of time into a format which is um, something we voluntarily um, do to have a certain, um, you know, to feel more attractive, to feel more um, um, socially integrated. And that was my question. And um, the history of the profile, which I tried to reconstruct in this book from the early profiles in psychiatry in the early 20th century to the FBI offender profiles since the 1970s to today. Um, this um, history of the profile was one thread to write um, the history of contemporary subjectivity. And the other two threads were um, the history of localization technology, where you could pose the same question. When was it necessary to localize yourself in space 20 years ago? It was when you know the FBI agents put a small beeper under a car to, uh, to look where, where the suspicious um, person will go to or you put electronic tags on the, on the, on the whistle of the ankle of, of criminals to look where they are, um, to our contemporary um, digital um, practice where everybody looks, uh, I don't know, 50 or 100 times a day on their smartphone to locate themselves in space. And the third 
thread, of course, um, very prominent is the whole quantified self movement, where you could also say, where did it come from that people measure um, their blood pressure or measure their sweat or, or measure their, their heartbeat um, to find something out about themselves? This is also a technology which came up in, in the early 20th century in terms of the lie detector, you know, the lie detector in court since um, around um, the First World War was um, invented with the same um, with the same desires to find out the truth about persons as we try to, to measure our bodily um, functions today, but again with the big difference that the lie detector wanted to wanted to uh, know something about deviant subjects, and today it's about healthy, normal, uh, happy subjects. And so that was the that was the approach of the book to kind of analyze the criminological and psychiatric fundamentals of our contemporary subjectivity. And this big, for me, still very very disturbing threshold that all formats of identifying deviant subjects, lunatics, criminals, etc., are today the model of creating healthy, normal, happy subjects. Interesting. That's fascinating. Um, so as we sort of wrap this up, are there other things? I know these both just then came out. Are you working on anything else? Or is there anything else you want to share about what you're working on right now? Yes, I mean, um, 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 since I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you're interested in my work, I can only say for, for to whom it may concern that there is um, also uh, a book I wrote translated in English, which is about the history of the elevator, totally different subject, <laughs> um, but also interesting, you know, um, before the elevator, um, all the spaces uh uh, on, on, on the top floors were very scary and for poor people and for illegitimate relationships. And then after the elevator, you had the penthouse, the roof garden and the chief executive suite. So this is kind of a, also a, a book which tries to examine the, the implications of a technological shift. And at the moment, yes, I try to, I try to write a book on something also very, very different. I, I try to write a book on pinball machines, but, uh, um, I hope that once it's, it's done, it's maybe also translated, uh, to the English language and then, um, you could read it. But this is a more, it's not maybe an academic or scholarly book, but more something like an attempt to, to narrate my own life as a series of pinball games because mm -hmm. I've been playing for a lot of years. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Well, it has been wonderful talking to you and learning a little bit more about your work and what you're doing. Um, again, this uh, is Rebecca Buchanan who for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And I interviewed Andreas Bernard, who's the author of Theory of the Hashtag, as well as The Triumph of Profiling. So thank you so much for talking with me on New Books Network. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm -hmm.